Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do here is we take a piece of pop culture and reveal how just underneath the surface there's a strong influence from days gone by, because history is everywhere. everywhere. What are we doing this time round? Well, actually, we're flipping it around. I'm going to be talking to you about how pop culture has influenced history, or specifically, we've got the area of pop culture creating rituals and things that we think is much, much older than they actually are. And I've got multiple examples of this, which means we're going to have an opportunity to be talking about death in Mexico. Dia de los Muertos. The Day of the Dead. We're going to be talking about revolution in England. And we're going to be talking about human sacrifice from the Iron Age and more. I, I'm so excited about doing this one. This was actually suggested by my producer of my old podcast, Neon. So shout out to you, Dan. This is for you. But to everybody else, come with me. I think you'll like this one. Let's start off with, I'm going to jump straight into the one. Now, some of these are kind of time dependent. You might be sitting there going, Jem, why are you doing it now? But if you like, that's almost the point. Because if you did an episode on Halloween, or if you did an episode on Christmas, etc., it's valid, but people will only ever listen to it once a year. And, and actually, this is something which shows you how pop culture, in essence, it's the tail wagging the dog. <laughs> rather than the other way and more normal way of doing it. I'm going to start off with Guy Fawkes Night. Now, if you don't know Guy Fawkes Night, if you're in America, for example, you might have little references to this. You might be vaguely aware of it, but allow me to explain. So in 1603, Queen Elizabeth I, the Queen of England, dies. She has no kids. So what do they do? They're looking around for a Protestant ruler. Can't have a Catholic on the throne. That would be a bad thing. So they get Mary, Queen of Scots' son, James VI of Scotland, whose mother had been executed under the orders of Queen Elizabeth I. He is allowed and asked to become monarch of both Scotland and England. So he's 
King James VI of Scotland, because there had been five previous, but he's King James I of England. And Scots rejoice around the world. And they always love pointing out, ha ha ha, we, we ruled your country before you ruled ours. That's actually not strictly true. You might want to have a look at Athelstan and also Edward I, but let's not go there, okay? The point is, he is quite a devout Protestant, and he's kind of obsessed with witches. It's also in this era, William Shakespeare wrote under the time of Elizabeth I, but also James I, sixth. I'm just going to call him James from now on, okay? And James actually wrote a book before he became King of England called Demonology, and it was all about witches. And it's pretty obvious that Shakespeare decided to write Macbeth. Actors are very superstitious. On no account mention the word Macbeth this evening, all right? Now, for the record, Macbeth... ...was a real king of Scotland, or most of Scotland, in the 1000s, in the 11th century, middle of that period, sort of like round about 1040. He ruled for over a decade, and basically, that's it. Apart from taking the name Macbeth... Uh this is the weird thing. We talk about Shakespeare and having the tragedies and the comedies and the histories, but they may be biased, but Henry V still fights the Battle of Agincourt. Julius Caesar never said et tu brute, but at least he stabbed by the senators. The history is there, if sometimes rather warped or there to be a bit of propaganda for the current ruling elite, whatever it may be. But Macbeth's the weird one because literally, apart from the name and a couple of the other names in the play, everything else is made up. He didn't kill the previous king. He didn't rule for only a matter of months. He wasn't killed by somebody who was born of Caesarean section. That wasn't the end of his reign either, in, in terms of basically his wife, Lady Macbeth, she already had a son from another marriage, Lilac, and he inherited the throne after Macbeth died. Now, the interesting thing about Lady Macbeth is, boy, is she a baddie. She is a great character in that play. Her real name is Grushi. And the only thing we know about her is she founded a number of religious sites for nuns in Scotland. So if you're going to compare it to other queens of the Middle Ages, she was actually lovely. She was nice, thoughtful, religious, pretty much the exact opposite of the way she's portrayed in the play. But the point is this. It's drenched in witchcraft and devilment and all this kind of stuff. Why? Because that's what King James loved. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? You write for your audience, you don't write for anything else. So Shakespeare was shrewd. However, because he was a new dynasty, the Tudors die with Elizabeth. He is part of the Stuart royal family in Scotland, been going on for centuries, and indeed his son will be Charles I, King of England. Most people know about him having his head chopped off. The Stuarts had a remarkably bad run of luck. A number of them died in battle. A number of them were executed. A number of them died by accident. It's, it's almost farcical, the amount of death of these leaders. They really were an incredibly unlucky dynasty, and it was a miracle they lasted as long as they did. The point around all this is the fact that this is an example of somebody who is new to the throne. He's a little bit vulnerable. And there is this Catholicism that wants to come back to England. Not everybody is Protestant. 
1605, a group of individuals decide that they're going to blow up Parliament. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason and plot. They get 20 barrels of gunpowder. At this time, the Palace of Westminster, what we would call Parliament now in Westminster, actually opened up onto the docks, onto the Thames. So there were lots of cargo areas. This is a time when people knew about gunpowder, but it, it hadn't really occurred to anybody that people would create a bomb to blow up Parliament. And so, cutting a long, complicated story, this group led by a guy called Roger Catesby, not Guy Fawkes, they decided that they were going to blow up James and also all of his court when they held court in Parliament with all the representatives, etc. Blow them all up, bring in a Catholic leader. Obviously somebody from Europe, but exactly who? TBC. They get found out. Guy Fawkes is caught when he's with the gunpowder. He gets tortured. He tries to give up other people's names. One of the key things was they were thinking about bringing in one of the Catholic members of James's family, his little girl, and they actually, the rest of the, you know, while well, Guy Fawkes is captured in London, the rest of them flee to the north to try and capture this girl. I mean, it's just awful. There's a shootout. There's torture. It fails. And James... Up until that point, had been pretty relaxed about the whole Catholic thing. He certainly wasn't as aggressive as Queen Elizabeth, for example. But because the Catholics had just tried to blow him up, funny enough, he uh, took that kind of personally. And then he decided to start cracking down. So it did the exact opposite of what the gunpowder plotters were hoping for. That's the basic bare-bones story. You can find out a lot more if you, if you want to have a look online. But what it isn't is a bunch of libertarians trying to tear down a corrupt regime to bring in a democracy for all the people to be included to fight against tyranny. That is kind of how it's been a little bit remembered by some people. And we come to Alan Moore's absolute classic comic from the 1980s called V for Vendetta. V for Vendetta is a set in a dystopian future of Britain. It's obviously an allegory for Thatcher's Britain. What's happened is that both Labour and Conservative have faded away and there's this new party after kind of a, a global war that's basically taken over and is this kind of incredibly strict, fascistic, right-wing, militaristic, kind of religious as well, organisation running Britain. We are under the jackboot of tyranny. And there's this guy called V who is hideously disfigured. So he wears a mask of Guy Fawkes because he is going to bring down the government in a way that Guy Fawkes never was. And it's Alan Moore who is a genius. You know, he's done things like Watchmen. He reinvented Swamp Thing. Here he is once again with V for Vendetta. Those three are probably his kind of holy trilogy of, of amazing comic book adaptations. In this particular situation, he's reimagined him as this kind of freedom fighter, and there can be no doubt that fighting against this fascist regime is the right thing to do. I'm not going to go into it. It was turned into a pretty good movie, slightly underappreciated. Sometimes it's on Netflix, sometimes it isn't. Might want to check it out if you've never seen V for Vendetta. It's not a perfect movie, but it's pretty good. It's a bit different to the comic, but you may not have the time to read an entire graphic novel. I don't know. If you do, check it out. It's almost as good as Watchmen, and Watchmen is virtually perfect. So yeah, big, big stuff. But this very stylized mask of Guy Fawkes 
began to catch on. And indeed, when V for Vendetta the movie came out, they started mass producing this Guy Fawkes mask, this kind of white-faced, smiling individual with a moustache and a little goatee beard as well. And if that sounds familiar, yes, you see it everywhere. There was a, a fun story about how it got picked up shortly after the movie by this hacking group called Anonymous. Apparently the reason why Anonymous came up was because there were these forums online where hackers would gather and people would quite often put Anonymous underneath it. And the joke became, wouldn't it be funny if Anonymous was just one person, which led to this collective grouping together and the whole subject of hacking is a complicated one. Whether they were hacking for freedom or hacking to just be annoying, that's your point of view. But the point is they, they began to mobilize, but they were a very loose-knit connection, which never actually met physically, which allowed great anonymity, almost like terrorist cells, very hard to put down. And it was a really big thing. Do you remember that in the early 2000s? V for Vendetta starts creating this as an icon and people start marching, sort of anarchist groups and green groups and campaigners for all kinds of causes start wearing the V for Vendetta mask. And there's this amusing story that a bunch of kids, teenagers on their way to a Comic-Con meeting in London were wearing V for Vendetta outfits because they were going as V from the comic but then they arrive accidentally in this big campaign and everybody thinks that they're part of them. So this is the whole mixture. But in 2021, on Guy Fawkes Night, which is the 5th of November, in the comic book, there's the Million Mask March, where all the people start putting on these masks to disguise V and to show the people are mobilizing against the fascist regime. It's the climax of the movie, climax of the book. It's great, but not a thing in real life. But there they were, more than a thousand people. It wasn't a million, but more than a thousand people on Guy Fawkes Night on 2021, kind of coinciding with the COP26 environmental event, which was in Glasgow, which is a long way from London, but it's now been hijacked. This idea of Guy Fawkes being this kind of liberal, democratic idealist. He can be caught, he can be killed and forgotten. But 400 years later, an idea can still change the world. He never was. He wasn't even the leader. That was Catesby, for heaven's sakes. He was the guy in charge of the gunpowder and it didn't go off. So he's a loser. Sorry about that. The idea of Guy Fawkes Night outside of Britain, because we're the only ones who tend to celebrate it. Interestingly, Guy Fawkes Night was celebrated in the colonies prior to people going independent. We have a letter from George Washington describing it as a silly festival. He was not a fan. This is prior to 1776 for the record. So it, it was celebrated for a time in America, but because it was in a comic book that was released in America and then in a movie that was basically created by American studios. The Americans kind of picked up on it and distorted it into a completely different thing. I know his name was Guy Fawkes and I know in 1605 he attempted to blow up the Houses of Parliament. But who was he really? And so now, I don't know how long Guy Fawkes is going to last as an icon. But this man who never was an icon is now seen as almost like a hero up there with Che Guevara and other sort of like noble lost causes that absolutely would have voted left wing, absolutely would have been green, absolutely would have been, you know, whatever. Whatever the current 
argument is about he definitely is on the side of the protesters even though he was a 17th century man with 17th century ideals and only wanted a catholic king to rule england that was his goal and he was willing to kill for it there has been a bomb disposal expert that looked at size of barrels quality of gunpowder etc if it had gone off the whole of Westminster would have been levelled, as would Westminster Abbey, one of the great medieval churches of Europe. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! These were not nice guys. Generally, people who set off bombs and kill hundreds of people today, we, by and large, call them terrorists. We, we don't look up to them. So, yeah, might want to think about that one. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. So if we're talking about basically a comic book that came out in the 80s and a film that started gaining attention in the 2000s, you might be thinking, wow, that's really recent. But there's actually something even more recent than that. We only have to go back six or seven years to the James Bond movie Spectre. Do you know what it's called? Its name is Spectre. To see another bit of pop culture influencing society around us. Inspector, in the opening scene, we got James Bond in Mexico City, and he's walking down the streets during the Day of the Dead festival. This huge parade that marches through Mexico City, where everybody celebrates this period where there's this connection with the ancestors of people's families. And that's generally a celebration 
in Mexico and in Latin America as a whole. Dia de los Muertos is the one night of the year our ancestors can come visit us. We've put their photos on the ofrenda so their spirits can cross over. But it's never been a march through Mexico City. That entire scene was created for Spectre, and it's a great scene. I'm not going to say Spectre's the, the best Daniel Craig, but that bit is certainly a cool bit in the movie. And it was just made up to look good. And yet, basically, the people of Mexico saw it and thought, that's a brilliant idea. So we've got something like the Rio Carnival or the Notting Hill Carnival, but with this angle linked to the Day of the Dead celebrations which is all to do with the movie that, at the time of recording, isn't even 10 years old. And yet, with the exception of COVID, since Spectre has come out, it has become a thing every year. And we, we, you know, we now get people who can win awards on their floats and makeup and costumes and things like this. And you would think, well, clearly this is something that goes back 100 years. It is super new. I've noticed that you can even build holidays around going to Mexico City for this festival, which of course you might do going to Rio or to London or New Orleans. But the irony is even New Orleans, you'd think you know, we all know America is quite is quite a modern country. You know, it hasn't been independent for 300 years yet. It's, it's coming up close to 250, by the way. In 2026, I'm sure there'll be lots of celebrations in America. But even America with the New Orleans Carnival, that beats the Day of the Dead March in Mexico City. That one, it's a short one because let's face it, there isn't much history there, but it's a classic example of it looks a lot older than it actually is. It's a little bit like, brief side point, we talk about the House of Windsor in Britain about the royal family. Queen Elizabeth, this is theoretically Elizabeth Windsor. Now, if you don't know this, Windsor is actually a fairly modern interpretation. It's been around for just over a hundred years. And if you think about how far we can date back monarchs, they go back over a thousand years. So why did it change? And the answer is World War One, because Queen Victoria and various other people like the Georges, you know, George III and losing the American colonies and all that stuff. There were a number of Germans that popped up into the royal family. I'm as British as Queen Victoria! So your father's German, you're half German, and you married a German. <laughs> So that by the turn of the 20th century, British royal family surname was Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, which is about as German as it gets. So in World War I, with hundreds of thousands of men dying, the royal family thought it wasn't a very good look. So then there was a debate. So what are we going to change it to? We can't call ourselves Tudors. You know, they died out centuries ago. What are we going to call ourselves? And they went even further back than the Tudors into the Middle Ages and said, well, you know, some of the kings referred to themselves as Windsor because Windsor was the their favourite residence. So why don't we call ourselves Windsor? Nothing more English than Windsor, which is a small town with a lovely castle just outside of London. It's as English as it gets. And so that's why they changed it. And to this day, they are referred to as Windsors. So that's another aside where it's, you would think with the royal family, this stuff goes back centuries. Actually, this stuff goes back only a hundred years. Let's move on to the other one, which is also American. We're gonna talk about Halloween. Now, I teed you up with human sacrifice. So allow me to give you the human sacrifice first, okay? The Incan people chose a beautiful teenage girl to become their princess. I hope this story ends with, and she lived happily ever after. No, I think it ends with, and she became a scary, discolored, 
Shriveled mummy. So there was an ancient Celtic celebration, a festival called, well, it's spelt Samhain. And I know in my Halloween special I did a year ago, I called it Samhain. I knew I was pronouncing it wrong, but I couldn't find the pronunciations. This is the problem with Gaelic and Celtic words. They use the Latin alphabet, but they have sometimes have very different pronunciations. As a kid, I used to think that I had two girls in my class. One was called Siaban and the other one was called Siobhan because I didn't know that you spell Siobhan Sioban. But how are you meant to know that if nobody tells you, okay? With this in mind, Samhain is how it's spelt. It is pronounced Sarwin. So there we go. I want to be clear here. When I say Celtic, I know suddenly we're in Ireland and you've got all these gingerhead people walking on moors with mists going behind them. Maybe you've got a bit of clanad playing as well behind all of that. And fine. That's how Ireland sells itself to the rest of the world nowadays, and good luck to them. But the Celts were actually a European-wide civilization, north of the Alps. The Gauls in modern-day France were Celtic. The furthest east we've got evidence of Celts is there were Celtic communities in Anatolia. That's modern-day Turkey. There is tons of Iron Age Celtic stuff across the whole, you know, Germany, France, the Low Countries, just they never went south of the Alps. Well, one army did and kicked the Romans to pieces in a very early case. We're talking about centuries before it was actually an empire. It was a pretty small force at that time. But anyway, yes. But the point is they didn't stay, including obviously Britain and also on into Ireland. So why do we associate Ireland and Wales nowadays as being really properly Celtic as opposed to France? because it all got superseded by first the Romans and then later Scandinavian influences, the Angles, Jutes, Saxons, and later on the, the Danes and Norwegians, which we would have called Vikings. And so they just sort of wiped it all out. The reason why Ireland and Wales are considered Celtic is because it's fairly inhospitable territory. There isn't a lot of arable land. Lots of people, the Romans didn't settle there very much. The Romans did briefly travel over to Ireland, didn't like what they saw and came straight back again. So it never became part of the Roman Empire. So with all that in mind, that's why we associate it. But there is evidence of Sarwin in various parts of Europe. Thing about the Celts, is this is a time when civilizations like Egypt and Greece and Rome did write stuff down, the Celts didn't. Yes, there is this thing called ogham, this sort of these scratches, these linear lines on things like stones. There is a little bit of that, but that's kind of like the Vikings. Both civilizations had a form of writing. They didn't do it to write books. They did it on basically territory markers. This is almost like saying this is gems property or something like that. No more than that. It clearly had some kind of important, almost magical power to it. So that is Halloween. Halloween evolved from Sarwin Samhain. There is evidence during the Iron Age, during the time of the Celts, that it seems in a few places this sort of ending of autumn going into winter was sometimes given with a blood sacrifice of a human being. And there are occasional signs of human sacrifice. We don't know whether they're a prisoner that was executed or somebody of great honor who was put to death for the gods. All we know is there are people who are occasionally found bound and killed. Who knows? So that's what's going on. And then funnily enough, we get Christianity coming in and Christianity is very good, like many religions of taking something that already exists and then evolving it and putting it into their own 
religious theological context. Don't believe me? The Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. What's it doing there for Christians? It's actually three quarters of the entire Bible. The New Testament is very thin compared to the Old Testament, but we took, well, I say we, Christians took the Jewish rules and then added to them, but they didn't disregard the early ones. Same with Islam. You get Isa, which is the Islamic name for Jesus, cropping up an awful lot in the Quran. Moses is there. Adam and Eve are there. So they took the things from both Christianity and Judaism and turned it into their own stories for their own people. So when there are festivals and things like that, you sometimes get people turning around and go, oh yes, there's Mithras, that was Christmas. It's actually a bit more complicated than that. I think there's a lot of people, atheists who want to sort of prove a point and then take it a bit too far. I am not a believer, but if you're going to have a go at religious people for not telling the whole truth and ignoring the facts, well, you kind of got to follow the same rules in your own area. And particularly when it comes to ancient religions, it isn't as clean cut. I love this analogy. You may have wondered, OK, we know a lot about Zeus or Jupiter or whatever, Horus, etc. Where's their Bible? Where's their book? And the answer is these more modern religions such as Hinduism or Christianity or whatever, they have a religious text. But some of these other pagan religions, these older religions, they didn't have texts. They, I mean, literally, Christians are sometimes referred to as the people of the book. But when it came to ancient Egypt praying to Artemis or whatever, there wasn't a standard text. What it was, it was a religion of ritual. It was making sure you got the rituals right and the legends could be spread orally rather than this is the only way you've got to believe Zeus and that's the only thing about Zeus. And this is why you didn't have religious wars because, oh, you pray to a war god, but you call it Horus. Well, we also pray to a war god and we call him Ares. It doesn't matter. You know, you're both showing respect to the god of war and that's why we're not going to argue about this. But as soon as you say the only way, it's got to be called Horus and anything else is wrong, then you're going to start a war. And it's those sorts of phrases in a monotheistic religion that can lead down that route. The day after Halloween in the Christian calendar is All Saints Day. So if you ask a Christian theologian, they'll say, basically, at the end of October, you get all the evil spirits coming out. This is their one chance. It's almost like the, the barrier between our world and the evil spirits is at its thinnest. And that's when they come out in the dead of night to hunt down people and cause mischief and anarchy and bloodshed. But then the next day on the morn afterwards, we're into November and it's All Saints Day and all the saints rise from the graves because they are good spirits rather than evil and malevolent spirits. They wash away that evil. It's a wonderful idea. It's in no way written in the Bible, but it's something that evolved over time. We are now into the Middle Ages, and so it goes on. So Halloween, as a sort of festival and commemoration, it was kind of, because it's at the end of the harvest season, it was a time of plenty, and therefore, this is, funnily enough, fairly close to something like Thanksgiving in America. By the end of October, all the harvests have been brought in. You've got a big pile of food, but winter is coming. Winter is truly coming, and in the winter, we must protect ourselves. We've now got no opportunity to grow crops over the winter period. If we slaughter a pig, that's one less pig than we've got in the new year. So we hope 
that we'd got enough food. It was a bit of a tense time. Fine, let's have a festival and feast now. Some of this food isn't going to keep for the next six months. But at the same time, do we have enough for six months? It was a slightly stressful time. My friends, there isn't much food, God knows, but there is enough for all of us. So then we come to 1978's Halloween movie. Every kid in Haddonfield thinks this place is haunted. They may be right. Because in America, in the 20th century, Halloween was remembered, whereas it had very much faded in Europe. And it had become a time when these little treats started to come out and the ritual of trick-or-treating started in the early 20th century. And because pumpkins are native to America and it's the end of October when pumpkins are sort of quite frequent and around, that's where they'd get the pumpkin carving from. Pumpkins can grow in Britain, but, they're, but they weren't a major crop prior to Halloween in 1978. And so the interesting thing to prove to you that it is an autumnal crop, Halloween, the movie, had a problem. It wasn't filmed at the end of October. It was filmed in sort of spring and summer. And where do we get pumpkins from? The reality is there are only three actual pumpkins in the movie. That One's carved, one's in the title, and I believe at another point one is being carried. All the other pumpkins in the background are a similar kind of gourd, but they're actually bright green, which they had to paint orange. This is a true story, by the way. Why don't you just use real cows? Cows don't look like cows on film. You gotta use horses. What do you do if you want something that looks like a horse? Well, usually we just tape a bunch of cats together. But the thing is though, Halloween, which was made for less than half a million dollars, which grossed about, I think, $72 million. So you can see how staggeringly profitable it was and led to all these endless remakes and reboots and so on and so forth. I mean, still happening all these years later. The point is, because it was a big hit in America, it was also a big hit in the UK. And so it started to reintroduce Europe and particularly Britain with, hey, there's this fun festival. So it's not an American festival, but we've very much taken the American version of it and made it into Halloween again. And I remember as a kid, a long time ago. we didn't really get Halloween, but by the time I had kids, it was a big deal. There were so many kids' movies about Halloween and trick-or-treating that my children wanted to do it. You know, I regularly had knocks on the door. I'd never liked the teenagers. They didn't quite get it. I'll never forget one time there was these kids who went, I offered them some sweets and they went, no, money. My treat is, is sweets, candy to Americans. And they went, no, money, or we do a trick. It's like, okay, that's against the law. You're just trying to force money out of me. And so they begrudgingly just grabbed huge fistfuls of sweets and walked off in a huff. And that really put me off at Halloween. So to give you an idea, in Britain, quite a lot of people just shut their windows, don't switch their porch lights on on Halloween, just basically saying, go away. There are some councils which basically specifically say, have this sticker, pumpkin sticker in your window, and you're only allowed to go to houses which have pumpkin stickers on them. Some places in my local area really go to town. I mean, kind of like a massive amount of Christmas ornaments, massive amounts of Halloween ornaments. So turning their house into like a little haunted house for one night a year, it's lovely to see. It's that sort of safe scare. That, that kids enjoy so much. We've just gone through two main ones and one little one, sort of snuck in there, a bit of James Bond. But we've got, in essence, three films that have changed culture and their impact is seen not in days or weeks, but in decades to the society around us. I have no doubt that the Day of the Dead Festival, because it's so successful and everyone likes the idea of it, it will be around in a century's time. Halloween is only going to become 
more commercial, more fun in, in Britain and the rest of Europe, because there's only going to be more movies about it. So I really hope you enjoyed that one. As always, you can catch me on Twitter at Jem Daduchu, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one, and hopefully I'll speak to you soon. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.